keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing times, the changing world, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 481. It is Friday, July 23rd, 2010. It's Friday, you know what that means. It is call-in Friday. I've got your questions queued up, about 10 of them, and there's a lot on gardening today. So if you're into gardening, you're going to like this. There's some other creative and interesting questions. A few of them are tough. I'm going to have to dig down and try to come up with an answer for I don't have them just uh, ready to throw out easy and quick. And uh, I like that. I like being challenged a little bit once in a while and making me think. Uh, because, you know, sometimes it's easy to live in a world where we go, well, I've got it figured out. And you forget that not everybody's in your exact situation. So I've got some questions today on generator sets with uh, deep freezers. i got some on, hey, what do I do with a skill that I have that's kind of cool? i got another one from an apartment dweller. So I'll try to make my way through that. I'll do my best for you, as I always do. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one today, of course, as always, is taking care of our sponsors because they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Shelf Reliance. Shelf, not self. Shelf, as in a shelf that you stack things on. Shelf Reliance makes some of the most innovative and coolest uh, food storage units I've ever seen. I've got a great video on the Harvest 72 from Shelf Reliance. You should check that out on my YouTube channel. Uh, but what you really have with Shelf Reliance is a way to practice what I say every day. Eat what you store and store what you eat when it comes to canned foods. And what it does is automatically rotates your food so you don't have to think about it or worry about it. It's really easy to get an inventory count. And you can store so much food in these racks, it's unbelievable. I think some people don't understand uh, maybe the way that the uh, the storage uh, efficiency actually works because it looks like there's a lot of space. When you look at one of those, that space, cans go in those spaces. Basically, it works this way. You pull out the uh, oldest can, and the newest can is up at the top, and it rolls down a little bit. It just keeps doing that till it gets to the front. And by then, you've replaced it, and you've kept well stocked the entire time. So check out Shelf Reliance. Remember, if you don't want a big system, they have their cancellator systems, not small ones that fit in the average pantry. Next up today is the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. What is a survival seed bank? Is it something you buy, go out, and plant in your backyard tomorrow? No. You could, but I don't think you should. Uh, a seed bank from from, um, from Solutions from Science is really more about, like just like you might go to Mountain House, you might buy a couple big old number 10 cans of pork chops, uh, and freeze-dried pork chops. They're going to cost more than pork chops at the uh, store, right? And you could go out tomorrow and you could open up that can and you could uh, rehydrate those pork chops and toss them on your grill and paint them with a little barbecue sauce, feed them to your friends, and they'd think, boy, those are really good pork chops. They would. They wouldn't even know they were freeze-dried. And they would perform exactly the way a pork chop is supposed to perform. But why do you buy them? You buy them because they can be laid up for a long time without any kind of care. And when you need them in the future, they'll be there for you. That's what a survival seed bank does with seeds. It makes sure they're available for you in the future. It is a storage product for the future. So check that out and see if that fits into your planning. Next up today is the Gear Shop. Check out the Gear Shop. You can find it at the survivalpodcast.com. Like I said, it's being revamped. I don't know if we're going to get revamped before. We've got something going on, folks, uh, with some of the uh, some of the moderators. That's all I can say about it that's coming up in the next week. And that's why I'm going to be gone for a while. And, and, and it involves SIS and uh, TW as well. So uh, I don't know if they're going to get the revamp done before they leave. But the Gear Shop, we've got some cool stuff coming. Uh, we're checking out some new suppliers of challenge coins that are going to make it more affordable for us to offer them to you. So maybe we can come up with more versions of the challenge coins, some really cool ones for you guys that like to collect them. Uh, we've got some other really cool product coming, but until then, check out the stuff that we have. 
check out your aunt hat. I just got an email from a guy. Here's what he said. He said, I had my aunt hat on, and I was walking out of a store, and some guy leaned out of the window of the passenger side of the van and went, Survival Podcast, woo! Uh, which I thought was kind of cool. He says he has no idea who the guy was, but he recognized the ant hat. And that's kind of a covert way to show your affiliation with the show. Only another listener would know. So check that out. Get an ant hat. Get a challenge coin. Get a t-shirt. Do something. Help support the store. Uh, that really is Tiffany and Rich Rockwell's operation. Uh, I just uh, kind of help promote it. All right. Next up... Uh, I want to tell you something about a statement I made about a Facebook application earlier this week where I think I was wrong. Um, there's this uh, new new episode of The Colony coming out, season two, and they have this experiment going on with The Colony, uh, you know, or this, this thing going on with The Colony with Facebook where basically you get a second version of Facebook and you think you're getting messages and videos and stuff like that from your friends. I haven't tried it yet, but what I said I didn't like about it is it asked for access to pictures and all this type of information about my friends, uh, which, of course, there's a thousand of them. So that, you know, worried me. And what it turns out from a guy that writes Facebook applications, they made a lot of comments on the blog that day, it doesn't grab their personal information. It just basically grabs their name and their picture, and the only person that sees it is me or someone else that's already a friend with them. And what it does is it has this kind of basic simulation already set up for things going wrong, but you think you're getting them from your friends. And that had just kind of been like a Facebook 2 world uh, that's supposed to be post-apocalypse. So that as the colony experiment is going on, you're kind of immersed in it a little bit. So I think that's kind of cool. It's still up to you whether you want to allow that application access or not. But there's nothing to worry about from my understanding at this point. Um, I don't like when something asks for that kind of access. Uh, so it's better to know what they're going to do with it from somebody that's already done it uh, than to do it yourself first. But I, I just want to back off of that one and tell you, I, I don't think that application's a threat. And then one more time, I want to remind you guys about jackspearco.com, which is a little daily podcast on video I do about how to build a business online since so many people have asked. Uh, I'm looking for a helper over there, somebody to run saverskills.com. Uh, check the site out for an announcement about that. And if you know WordPress and you're passionate about traditional skills, and you've got about 15 hours a week to dedicate to building something of your own, consider applying for that position. With that, let's go ahead and start taking your questions. And I do want to say I don't know why my voice is a bit scratchy and cracky today. I'm going to do my best to get through this show for you and then maybe give it a rest uh, for a couple days, and thankfully we have a weekend coming up. All right, so your first, let's go ahead and take that first question. Tom up in northern Wisconsin. I actually have two questions. Uh, the first question is, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm new to the podcast. I have, consider it four square acres. The two northern square acres are wooded. The, the, the southern square acres are the home in, in empty, empty, empty land. So I have a beautiful tree line. I'm only home on weekends. So I want to plant close to the tree line where I can only tend it on weekends. Right now, uh, it's all weed covered. It's the middle of July. I probably can't do anything till spring under the clearing. What kind of prep and clearing should I do? The weeds are as tall as I am. Um, I guess my other question would be, those of us who are on the road uh, days at a time, uh, truck drivers, what have you, uh, what minimal survival gear should we keep with us? Trying to keep in mind uh, all different scenarios. I try and make sure I've always got... Uh, Enough fuel to go a thousand miles without a trailer. But uh, some of the other issues, food and other things, the sun. I enjoy hearing your thoughts on that too. Great show. Thanks. Okay, folks, I think Tom was actually calling in from his truck, and I had to cut the first. Uh few seconds of his call off, because I think he had to wind it down or something and put it up when he started talking, at least. So uh, he didn't really miss nothing there, but I think it's cool he's on the road when he was making the call. Um, here's the thing. Let's start out with the garden question. I told you there'd be a lot of them today. Here's the first one. Uh, you've got this piece of property where you're going to want to uh, to grow some stuff, and right now it's all weeds. And here's the good news. Since you're in Wisconsin, you've probably got great soil. I mean, most of that state has beautiful soil. It's a great place to grow stuff. The other good news is since it's not really been used to grow anything and it's just been sitting there weeds and cut and weeds and cut for years, it's probably great fertile soil. There's no reason you couldn't maybe start improving it right away. What you may want to do is break that ground up. I know you don't want to garden yet, but let's say you just to figure out where you're going to be gardening. 
break that ground up and uh, plant the hell out of some kind of a winter cover crop, like a winter pea or something like that. Now, as cold as it gets there, it's not going to make it through the whole winter, but it'll make it up at least and probably past the first couple uh, frosts and snowfalls if you use a good hardy winter pea. That's going to uh, choke out a lot of those weeds between now and then. It's going to start competing with them, but it won't come back. It's not a perennial. It's also going to start throwing some nitrogen in that soil for next year when you're ready to garden. The big thing you want to be doing right now is planting your beds out. And I'm going to tell you that it's probably hot even in Wisconsin right now, but the fall's coming, and the best time you could ever build your beds is going to be in the fall. If you're going to build raised beds, that is. If you're not going to build raised beds, if you're just going to do in-ground beds, and that's fine too, the fall's still a good time to do it. It's cool, it's nice, the ground hasn't frozen yet, it isn't soggy wet, it's a hell of a lot better than the springtime for doing it. So those are my two biggest suggestions right now. Plan, map out, draw the thing. Uh, and be prepared to get the construction done, whether it's raised beds or in the ground. Uh, I don't care which. Be prepared to do that this fall when the weather's beautiful and there's a lot of great, you know, leaves laying around and just go ahead and mix that crap in your, you don't have to worry about composting them because you're going to have a whole winter for those things to be in the ground, attract worms, get some good biology going on. But once you get them constructed, even in the fall, you might want to throw a winter cover crop in there. Uh, even if it just sprouts and it doesn't go very far, if it's something that doesn't handle the winter. Uh, and check with high mowing seeds about, you know, they're up in New England, so they deal with the same kind of winters you do, about maybe something that could survive that harsh winter uh, as a cover crop, maybe some ryegrass or something like that. But I would definitely get some vetch or some pea in there uh, as well, at least early in the fall, or go ahead and do that now. Uh, because that'll give you a lot of nitrogen cycle for the next season when you really want to make it happen. The other thing, since you travel, install drip irrigation. This is a good time to start mapping that out, planning that out, talking with somebody from your hardware store or what have you about your water flow rates and, and what you're going to need to do to do that, how many valves, how many uh, zones, depending on how much you want to put in. If it's a couple beds, it's pretty simple. If it's maybe 10 beds, you might have to do a few zones to deal with water pressure issues. Uh, so that's a good thing to plan out and get a timer because that's going to let you be on the road next year and have all your watering taken care of. Every time we go away, I have to have my son or hire a neighborhood kid to come over here and water every other day to keep my plants alive because I haven't bothered with drip irrigation because we don't plan on being here another season. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it would be nice if I could just set the timer and go. Uh, it would take a lot less work to keep the garden up, but right now I actually enjoy having it. Uh, so I've let it be that way. But if I travel, that's the only way to go. Now, what do you take with you when you're on the road? Well, I'd say go back and listen to a couple episodes, uh, specifically on bug out bag and bug out vehicle. And everything that I recommend that you would keep for normal day-to-day -day, uh, vehicle usage, 50 miles back and forth to work or something like that, I recommend you have that. And then I recommend you up your food supply. I'm going to tell you that as big as your rigs are, and I've seen how you guys have sleepers in them and stuff like that, you should have a week's food supply on you as a trucker. I'm going to also tell you that you should have several methods of self-defense. You probably already have a tire billy. Keep it under your seat. It's one of the best uh, uh, clubbing tools there is, and no matter what state you're in, you have justification to have it in that truck. Uh, I would carry a gun. Uh, you, I do know that there are certain states where maybe you have to put your gun away and secure it, depending on what your route is. You have to know the, the, uh, the legalities of that uh, based on uh, your travel. I know you've got some places out there that are crazy with restrictions. you got to figure that out. But um, I, I almost say that I would risk it in certain areas if I'm just passing through to make sure I'm armed at all times. Uh, especially if something really goes wrong while you're on the road. As a trucker, as long as you're dragging that trailer, you're a target. Because even if it's half empty or empty, people think there's something in there. Um, you might want to consider, uh, you know, the thing is I don't know trucks. I don't know the, 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 the OTR trucks that you guys drive. You guys have so many convenience items there. You may have some level of uh, gener uh, power generation capability I'm unaware of. If so, that's great. I mean, I know diesel trucks from the Army standpoint, which are bare-bones, busted-down uh, combat vehicles, maybe a PTO on a thing or two, and that's about it. Um, so I would say that you know, you know your rig, 
And anything that you can find as an accessory that would enhance your survivability that would work with that rig, make sure you make that part of your preps as well. Uh, keeping fueled up, you've already mentioned, that's a great idea. That's the best I can do for you. Because to start going through the items, I would be rehashing stuff I've already done. So again, check out, go to the site, search for Bug Out Bag and Bug Out Vehicle and listen to a couple of those episodes. And basically what I'm saying is, Do a little bit more than the person with the car because you're out there for a hell of a lot longer. And food supply, do food and water for a week uh, in the truck at all times. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Adam out in San Francisco. I just had one comment, one question. First comment, my fiancé came across a neat way to save money in a bridal magazine. Every time you get a $5 bill, you stick it in a jar. We've managed to save a few hundred dollars in just a couple of months. Uh, and the question I had was, what's really the difference between, like, say, Mel Bartholomew's square foot garden and the how to grow more vegetables, biointensive, double digging, uh, kind of method? Because I, in an earlier episode, you talked about moving away from the square foot garden, and I thought you said more about the biointensive, but I could be mistaken. So anyway, hope you can help out. Great show. Keep doing what you're doing, and look forward to hearing from you. Well, let's start out with the saving five bucks uh, in the the uh, bridal magazine. Interesting idea. I guess you could do that with any denomination. Pick a denomination and stick it in a jar. If you're going to get married and uh, that's why you're saving money, here's my advice with all the money that you're saving. Take the majority of that money invested into your home and your marriage and have a very nice but very inexpensive wedding. And I'm not saying one way or another what you guys are going to do because I don't know, but I'm telling you that I look at people throwing weddings for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, and I think that's a down payment, and that's a damn good down payment on a nice house. And that when you're getting married, this is for everybody, folks. When you're getting married, or you know someone that's getting married, invest in the marriage. Uh, you get married once, and that's the reason to throw a nice party. But you're married for the rest of your life, and that's the reason to invest in it. See, we. Uh, We do things for fun that are a little bit extravagant because we only live once. But when we invest in something, that's something that lasts. Your marriage is something that lasts. So to anybody out there getting married or knowing somebody getting married, please give them that advice or if it's you, take it. Put the big investment into your marriage and put the small investment into getting married. All right, on the uh, next part, the difference between square foot gardening and uh, biointensive, primarily is uh, the fact that when square foot gardening, you're managing the soil one square foot at a time, and that breaks it down and makes it easy. And I found with small gardens, one or two beds, it's a great way to do things. I found that it works very well with four foot by four foot beds with getting around things. But I've also found that if you're doing exactly what Mel says, and that's planting different plants and all, and when one plant's done pulling it out, a lot of times what happens is you end up with a square, And it's surrounded by a bunch of, let's say, big high peppers, and you want to put something in there. Now, you can throw some lettuce in there or something that's going to enjoy that shade, but a lot of times even that's too much shade even for something like that. So with biointensive, you're more likely to go with groupings. Uh, so your peppers are in a group, your lettuce is in a group instead of just a square. Uh, with biointensive, you're more likely to grow a little bit more food. Now, I'm somewhere at a hybrid in between the two of them right now because no method fits everybody. But the big difference is... Uh, square foot gardening is all about maximizing production per foot and, and just constantly producing something that's either pretty or edible. With biointensive, you're growing a large quantity of, of uh, plants that exist for no other reason than for soil building. So you have a few beds that are producing food, and you have a bunch of beds that are producing fertilizer, and you're constantly kind of rotating between them, and you're using the biomass generated to constantly improve the soil. Where what Mel says is, hey, start out with a good soil mix and keep adding compost and you'll be all right. He's not wrong, but for truly sustainable and something that fits more in the permaculture field, uh, biointensive seems to have uh, an advantage. So what I've kind of done is taken the best of both of those and begun to apply them. And I'm not making any real major changes with the setup I have here, but as we start building the setup in Arkansas, we're kind of thinking more in the permaculture world overall than we were when we established this system here. And uh, we're going to back off of the square foot stuff a little bit and go with more groupings and more rotation. The other thing is that with biointensive, you go into a staggering methodology so that you basically have rows, but one row is staggered against the other to maximize space. 
I'm actually starting to demaximize space. I'm starting to realize how much I can produce with how little. And I'm starting to, either way, not ask for as much from the same piece of ground. I'm, I'm asking for less uh, extraction from the ground. Uh, and I, I realize I don't need this hyper-efficiency because I have the space to work with. And these hyper-efficiencies were primarily developed for people that don't have the space. And when I move, I really have the space. So I'm, I'm, that leaves me less uh, inputs to keep the soil fertile. So I'm kind of in a, like a nebulous world between the three worlds uh, with, with permaculture primarily leading the way because it's not based on methodology, it's based on principles. So if I look at something and go, what should I do? Then I go back to my 12 primary principles of permaculture and my seven-layer system and say, where does it fit? And that helps me figure out what to do with it. And that just to me seems like a better way to be rather than be locked into anybody's uh, methodology, whether it's French biointensive, whether it's Mel's square foot. But I find both of those methods to be highly efficient for specific applications. Like I only have room for two four-foot by four-foot beds. Hey, square foot gardening is the way to go. I want to be a small gardener that's uh, like a, a market producer. Biointensive is going to maximize your production, maximize your profit. It's also going to be sustainable because you're growing so many things that don't really require attention. They're just being grown for the ability that they have to continuously improve your soil. But the big difference, square foot, blocked off into square feet, managed that way, all the soil used all the time, con continuous input of compost, biointensive, blocked off more into sectors, plants planted staggered. A large portion of what's grown is not grown for harvest, but for improving the soil. So there you go. Let's uh, go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Derek in Kennedale, Texas. I'm looking at my garden, and so far this year I haven't got many tomatoes out of it. And my peppers finally started to do something. My Tabasco peppers are growing good, and my Spanish spice are growing good. Jalapenos aren't even growing good this year. They've gotten plenty of water, and we're you know we're starting to hit that hundred degree here in Texas. So, wonder if I should go ahead and chalk it up because I don't really like to pull them up till the end of the season. But if they're not going to produce anything, they're not going to produce anything. Just want to get your thoughts to see if there's anything you think I can do to them. I sprayed some Miracle Grow on them a couple of days ago to try to help them, and it helped the peppers. The tomatoes just seem like they're going to be a total loss this year. Uh, I appreciate everything you do for us. Thanks. Well, um, I think you found your solution for your peppers because when I first started listening to you, it was I was going to tell you. And don't be mad at me, but I got jalapenos, um, like so many that some of my pepper bushes have had branches during a rain fall off the plant and I've had to go out and just pick the branch up and bring it in and pull 20 peppers off that weren't quite as big as I thought they would get. I mean, I've literally got jalapenos weighing down the plants. I've had to stake them up like tomatoes. Um, I think you're probably dealing with the peppers with not enough nutrient. Um, if you had huge pepper plants with no peppers, then you've got too much nitrogen. And that's something people worry about, and I've very seldom seen it happen. I've very seldom seen an over-fertilized over pepper, and I think people don't fertilize their peppers as much as they should with compost and things like organic fertilizer. I would tell you, um, get a good organic fertilizer. I know some people don't like miracle Grow because there's, a, there's this chain link through Scott's that eventually leads to Monsanto, and everybody I know... Everybody knows I hate Monsanto as much as anybody else on the planet, but the reality is if I'm not going to buy anything that's part of the Monsanto distribution chain, I can't go to Home Depot, I can't go to Lowe's because they sell Roundup, right? I mean, so, um, you know, I, it's a good product, and I think that we should reward companies when they produce good products, and miracle Grow Organic Fertilizer Liquid is an awesome product for your situation, because uh, it's hard to dig stuff into the soil with a solid fertilizer once the plant's growing. I would get some of that, and I would fertilize the absolute crap out of your peppers until they really start to green up. If your leaves are yellow on your peppers, and this is for everybody right now, if you have yellow, light green instead of deep, dark green leaves and peppers, they are nitrogen deficient. 
if they are kind of a, a, a color the same way I'm talking about, but instead of yellow, they kind of go to almost a purplish, like it's even in the background, hard to tell, but instead of just yellow, it's almost a purplish tint, they're probably phosphorus deficient. Either way, that stuff will, will square it away. If you don't want to use miracle Grow, get a good, uh, balanced fertilizer, fertilize the hell out of them until they're green and growing, and then back off. And if they start to yellow up again, fertilize the hell out of them again. Um, if they start, you know, it, it, the worst thing that will happen is you'll get a bush that grows bigger than it should and produces less fruit. That's a hell of a lot better than one that languishes and produces nothing. Your tomatoes, I just, I just yank them. My gut is, like everybody else in this damn place, you're dealing with blight. And once that plant gets, if you have yellowish, brown, uh, dying vine on your tomatoes, like in my video, yank them the hell out of the ground. Burn them. Get rid of them. Don't put that crap in your compost heap. Um, and I'll tell you what, if we happen to somehow, because my wife talks me into it, which I don't think is going to happen, be here next spring, I have given up on tomatoes in Dallas-Fort Worth until we get a heavy freeze winter and kill this stuff. This blight came into this area through the big box stores and a shipment of plants about three years ago. It was very uncommon here, and now it's everywhere, every year, all the time. And um, it's in the soil, and every spring uh, it, it sprouts and it dusts and it flies through the air and it, it spreads, and the only thing that's going to kill it is a heavy freeze, and we haven't had one for a few years. Uh, even the snow we got this year, we had 11 inches, but it wasn't a heavy freeze. We need one of those days where it's down in the teens all day long. Until we get that, we're going to be dealing with this, and I'm tired of dealing with it. Alternatives. This is what I've learned this year. For you people that deal with tomato blight and you want to substitute, grow two things. Ground cherries and tomatillos. I have tomatillos that I'm literally cutting branches off every day because they close the space. I couldn't walk between the rows of my garden. They're up the trellis, two plants that, you know, two months ago were two little stringy plants, have taken over the whole backside of the trellis of one eight-foot bed. They're going nuts, and they're producing and producing and producing, and the blight doesn't touch them, and the tomato hornworms don't know what to do with them. Uh, the only thing I see on them are what they call leaf, leaf, uh, leaf leg bugs or something like that. We also call them squash bugs, not the vine borers. They don't even seem to be doing that much damage to them. The ground cherries are insane. Absolutely insane. Neither one's like a nice, fresh, black creme tomato, but I'm done with tomatoes in this area until we get past this blight issue for as many seasons as it takes. I just can't tolerate losing them anymore, so I'd yank those. The peppers, fertilize. That's where I think your issue is. Most people in this area that I've seen with, with poor performance in their peppers, especially this year, it's been a good year for peppers. Uh, it's been under fertilization, nitrogen and phosphorus deficiencies. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Kelly in Mansfield, and I have a question for you. Um, I enjoy different yarn crafts, crocheting, knitting, that sort of thing, and I am wondering, is there anything that you would recommend um, yarn crafters like myself make? For example, all I can really think of in a survivalist kind of situation that might be good for me to have on hand, and it's really just for every day, is to make a, a bag for me to carry in my stuff from the garden. But is there anything that you can think of that would be good for me to make that um, might help us out in any type, of, any type of emergency situation other than blankets and stuff like that if, if we're stuck in cold weather? So I appreciate your show and look forward to hearing your feedback. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, folks, I'll tell you up front, that's actually someone we know uh, personally. And uh, thanks for calling in, Kelly. We appreciate you uh, being part of the show this way. Uh, let me give you a couple things I can think of here. I mean, you mentioned blankets and things like that, and that's definitely something that's a good idea to have. If you're a yarn crafter, of course, you can craft with uh, wool yarn, which is tremendously uh, valuable as an insulator. One of the other things you have to think about, though, is what you have is a skill. You have a skill you enjoy, and that means it can be leveraged to produce something called income. And income is a great thing to have. Income either in the form of money or in the form of barter. And I know you happen to have a channel available to you you've probably never seen overlap with, but I'm telling you right now, um, if you were to knit something like a wool scarf in a certain pattern, there's someone that you know in your life that could probably use their existing channel to sell those to people that deal with cold weather tactical situations, and I'll leave it at that. 
But beyond that, I mean, you need to look at the fact that you have a, a skill of handcrafting and uh, things like gloves as well. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of what you can create and what channels you can put it into for barter and what channels you can put it into uh, for uh, direct income. So those are a couple things. Now, what you can make for around the house, I mean, you've said the big things, clothing, uh, carrying stuff, and uh, uh, blankets. I can tell you that, folks, wool blankets, especially knitted wool or crocheted wool, wool blankets, are just awesome. Um, Tiffany from the gear shop made one she gave to my wife and every time she's cold because I put the air conditioner on like 66 degrees just to piss off Al Gore uh, she's underneath the damn thing and happy um, so I, I mean I'm not, a, I'm not that's not a, a craft I'm familiar with there's certain limitations that it has it's more of a, a warmth generating uh, uh, type of clothing it's not real rugged so you have to market into the right segment for that. Uh, being down here in the heat, you know, you have a limited window when people are thinking that way. But with the Internet, you have the ability to market to places where wool's a good thing to have every day. The key is, with everything else, when you have a skill that you want to market, is the marketing. And beyond just, hey, this is something that I make, uh, you need to market it for a purpose, so if you build something, you need to think about its unique attributes that aren't available from Walmart, like being handmade and purpose-built. And whatever site you're featuring it on, you need to feature those features prominently. I know I'm going into a business lesson here, but that's how you make a skill pay off, folks. You, you know, here's the thing. Like if you're a tiler, you can do floor tiling, right? Well, uh, you might have a job doing it. And then you might tile your own house. And once you've tiled the freaking roof, what else are you going to do for yourself? That's how any skill a person has is eventually they kind of do it everywhere at their house and maybe overdo it and go, okay, I've done enough now. Now what do I do with this? And if you don't have a job doing it, now you really got to figure out what do you do with it. Well, you market it. So if you were a tiler, I would say get really good at extremely beautiful mosaic tiling and market that and be different than the guy that comes in and just tiles the floor. And uh, so if your, uh, your, 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 your hobby and your craft and your skill is knitting and crochet and, and yarn craft, then get very unique and very purpose-built and market that skill set. Uh, that's the best I can do for you. And since we do know each other, if you want more, you know, come on over and hang out with us and we'll talk about it. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Jack, Jim in Houston. Um just uh, just got my mirror radio and love it. Um, can you tell us how you would wire up your bug out location to monitor from long distance? Like, say my bug out's five hours away and I'm in Houston and I want to keep tabs on it. I mean, it's probably a simple question, but I'm not a techie. Thanks, pal. Well, it's certainly not a simple question, and, and your MERS radio is probably not the way to pull that off. Uh, MERS Radio is about security when you're on site in general. I guess you could do some things with it to uh, to to get that done, but you're gonna be, you're gonna need some level of an internet connection. So you, the only way you're gonna pull this off is if you have a an always-on internet connection at your bug out location, uh, something like a, um, a DSL connection. Hopefully that's available there. I know where I'm at, it's not available, and uh, maybe some webcams. And I guess you could use the motion detection systems from MERS uh, and, and maybe put a camera on the base station uh, that's plugged in and at least you would get an audible alert and then you could use the cameras to check around. The problem with just, you know, basically wiring in the audible to your computer is you're going to alert sector one and you ain't going to know what the hell it is and it could be a deer, you know, eating some grass on the side of your driveway or whatever you have there. So MERS is not really that type of technology. MERS is limited in transmission distances to about two miles. Um, so five hours by car, you know, you're looking at what, 300 miles, 200 and, you know, somewhere around there, uh, maybe 350 miles, something like that. Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen with anything uh, that you can use in that capacity as far as radio transmission. Uh, you could definitely cover that distance with something like ham, but you can't use it that way. So, because it's not designed to be used that way, it's a shared, you know, frequency. So, 
The only way you're going to pull this off with monitoring at your location is going to be with the internet and webcams. And again, you could make um, the uh, sector monitoring portion of the MERS system part of that. As long as you had at least one camera that picked up audio that was kind of hanging out in the vicinity of, it didn't even have to be pointed at, but hanging out in the vicinity where it's going to pick the audio up uh, of your uh, of your base station and crank that sucker up. And that's, you know, having a webcam system that transmits audio. So that's kind of like a separate webcam, right? You got your security webcam generally do not, you know, security camera systems generally don't do audio. Uh, but like a little webcam connection like between two people talking would. So there's your kind of hybrid the way you could piece it together. I'm going to tell you that for monitoring remote of any facility, you're better off with just a camera-based system because you need to see what's going on, not hear some nebulous alert. We'll often hear alert sector two, and all that means is Max the dog is trying to figure out how to get out of the fence. We open the door and whistle and call him in. And he's gotten smart enough that he's got conditioned with that. When he wants in, he runs over, sets the damn thing off. And I'm sure you can hear it through the walls because that dogs have great hearing. And then he just runs to the back door and waits us for us to open it. So it's his way of kind of ringing the doorbell now. So uh, MERS is the technology to use where you're at. Um, remote monitoring needs to be done with something involving an Internet connection. Um, I guess I'm kind of a techie in some ways. I'm not a techie in that world, but it's not that hard to set up. You can go out to Costco and buy piece together systems to do that with. Uh, but it's up to you how you actually implement it. But MERS is not the way to make that happen. Uh, it's not really the way I would handle uh, the situation myself. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is George from uh, your old stomping ground, Southwestern PA. Um, I got your email about uh, needing some calling questions. Maybe too late, but anyway, one question I've had lately is I'm um, looking for, I don't have a generator yet, and I just got a freezer and a half a cow to put in it, and uh, I want to start with a small generator I could use to maybe run that freezer, protect my investment if it, uh, if it need be, and then uh, I was hoping to get something else, you know, a bigger one later to run some other things. I was wondering if you have recommendations. I just started looking at them, so I don't really know much about them, but if you have any recommendations for, you know, the first when you get the small to just run a thing like a freezer and then maybe something bigger to run other things. If you have ideas, and uh, let me know. Thank you. Great show. Bye. Well, the good news is, unlike a lot of people looking for their first generator, you know specifically what you want it for. A lot of times I tell people, you know, just get a generator, 1200 1500 2000 2000-watt, little cheap one, $150, $200. Make that a first generator, then buy a bigger one. But if that's what you want it for, it's primarily to protect the investment in your chest freezer, then you need to buy something that at least, at minimum, has the ability to handle that. Um, you can look up all kinds of wattage charts online, but memory serving me, most freezers, refrigerators, depending on size, deep freezers even, have running wattage of about between six and 800 watts, which is any generator out there just about is going to handle that. The problem is... That when you look at a generator, there's two things you have to look at. You have to look at the running wattage, what's called the peak wattage. And what that is, is a freezer's not always on, okay? It's not always running. It basically kicks on and fires up its motor and starts producing cool air, and then it runs. And any appliance that kind of does that on-off or, you know, you initially plug it on, turn it on with a power button, whether it's automatic or manual, right at the point where you push it on, it has a peak wattage, a peak draw. And with a freezer or a refrigerator, that peak draw is way, usually it's a little higher with a lot of appliances. With, with appliances like that, it's a big peak. So you go from a running wattage of six to 800 to a peak of, you know, depending on your model and you have to look at it and what it draws. And information is probably with the manual or right on the device itself on an information plate. But it's going to probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1800 to 2200 watts. Uh, so you're going to be wanting to look for a generator uh, that has a peak wattage capability, uh, probably just based on what's available in the 3,000 to 3,500 watt peak uh, capability. So that's going to be in your middle sized generators. And you may want to go ahead and get a, just go ahead and get something that has uh, more capability than that since you're already stepping up into that level. That's the big thing. Whenever you're buying a generator, you just need to add up all the stuff you want to run simultaneously with it. 
and you need to have enough peak wattage to handle the peak, and you need to have enough running wattage to handle the running. And that, it's really that simple. As for what to buy, I mean, Honda probably makes the best ones. They're also the most expensive. Uh, they're also some of the quietest ones. Uh, I, I've had no problem with like the low-cost generators from people like Harbor Freight. Uh, most of the stuff that's sold by Costco is really good. They just had a killer deal. I don't remember the brand. It might even still be available. A killer deal on a 7,500-watt peak generator. It was an awesome deal. So you might want to check Costco out if they're in your area. Um, I'm not real picky on the brand of a generator. I own several different ones. They all have worked really great for me. The only thing you might want to consider, and this is going to cost you more, and it's when you go into the Hondas and some other varieties, is you might want to look for a quiet one. Uh, the louder they are, the more obnoxious they are, the more they bother people, the more they give away your location, the less useful they are for things like RVing. So there are some low decibel ones out there. You might want to check into that. But overall, just to run a chest freezer, uh, anything you know with a neighborhood of uh, 3,000, 3,500 peak watts, uh, that you can afford that makes sense. I'd rather you have a cheap generator uh, that you're going to use for typical power outages in the summertime to keep that freezer running uh, than have no generator at all. Uh, generators are like most things in life. The more you spend, the better the quality, but you don't always need the best. Plenty of people spend their life um, driving around in, in a Chevrolet, and it does a great job for them. Uh, there are people that are very wealthy and want the best and buy something like a high-end Mercedes-Benz. Is it a better quality car? Some people would debate that. I think it's hard to debate. I think it is a better car uh, as far as everything that it comes with and everything that it does and on some levels it's reliability. But that Chevy will get you back and forth to work every day. And that Chevy-class generator uh, will keep that... Uh, Keep that freezer running for you for, you know, on and off, running it at different parts of the day to keep it frozen in there for a week or more while you wait for the power to come back on and you don't lose all your beef. So there you go. Best I can do with that one for you. I am not a generator expert. It's one of my areas of least expertise. I've just gone with the theory if I have enough of them, I can get and I keep enough gas on hand stabilized. I can get through just about any of the uh, common occurrences. Uh, when we moved to Arkansas, I'm actually rethinking my thoughts about wood gasification. Uh, I found a wood gas producer uh, that is pretty badass, I'll be sharing with you in the future, that can run a generator. And tied in with solar and wind, boy, you could create a lot, and I mean a lot of energy independence uh, on a few pounds of wood a day. Uh, as a supplement to other sources and uh, especially with a good battery system so that you when you're producing excessive energy you're storing it because you don't want to run that thing you know nonstop 24 7 365 so uh, yeah uh, that's you know I'll be I'll be learning more about generators folks and as I learn more I'll be telling you more but that's the basics of it let's go ahead and take a uh, another question hey Jack Jeff Duncan Tennessee uh, just had a small idea that I do I wanted to share uh, storing walks uh, put them in a gallon can don't fill them all the way up about two thirds put them in a deep freeze serves multiple purposes uh, long term of course you've got water storage uh, mid term if your power goes out for say 40 hours your freezer stays cold because you've got that bulk of ice there in addition to your frozen uh, foods that are in the uh, deep freeze uh, in addition to that is if you're going fishing you can reach in there Take you a big old gallon jug of ice, throw it in the cooler, and you're gone. Don't have to buy any ice. Don't have to stop at the store. So it's just an idea that I do, and I was going to share with you, uh, and uh, maybe you can find it helpful and share it with everybody else. I appreciate what you do on your show, and uh, look forward to hearing more of your uh, good ideas out there on the podcast. Thanks. Have a good one. Well, that's a great tip, and it's something we've definitely talked about on, on the show before, is having uh, large bottles of ice in the deep freezer. And for the last question, and I, again, I just, it blows me away. And these two questions came in last week when I said, hey, I need questions for some call-in shows. I've got some stuff stranded on an old computer that doesn't want to fire up for me. And these questions came in back-to-back -back again. One guy wants a deep freezer uh, to run with, a, with a, a generator. Next guy calls him with an enhanced solution. That's why I didn't say anything about it uh, in the last call. It just amazes me how in sync this audience is. 
but you know you, you have that generator sitting there and you only have to run it as often as you need to keep the stuff inside the uh, deep freezer cool well if you have about five or six big bottles of ice in there it's going to enhance how long it can go between times running the generator that conserves your gas that conserves hours running on your generator that makes everything more efficient a thought on the bottles I've done this for years, exact same thing, and I'm a fisherman, so they've constantly been in and out of buckets with, with fish in them and had to be cleaned off because of fish slime. What I've learned is that as far as handling deformation and rough treatment, milk jugs are okay, but they're not the best. They're also designed for short-term usage. Milk jugs are designed to hold something with low acid content, milk, but there is acid in there, for a relatively short period of time because milk comes with expiration date. So the lactic acid does get into the plastic a little bit while you're using it for milk, and eventually it does start to break down. And It's easy for something like a catfish spine to put a hole in a milk jug, and as it melts, it starts to leak, and you got to replace it. What I've gone to using, some people use Pepsi bottles and stuff like that, uh, but what I've found that's great, Gatorade makes these one-gallon um, kind of square-shaped uh, Gatorade, pre-mixed Gatorade bottles, and we don't drink a lot of that. But we find people that do, and most of them don't want them, and we're able to get their their bottles. And we fill those about, I'd say about 80% of the way, gives plenty of room for that ice to expand. You get a nice square-shaped block of ice uh, in a very durable bottle. And you get all the things that that caller just mentioned. There ain't much else to say about that. Other than it's a great tip. Thanks for calling it and pointing it out. And, folks, if you have, and even if you don't have a deep freezer, you have a regular side-by-side -side or overhead. If there's any room in your freezer, fill it up with bottles of water. Now, if there's any room at all, even if it's just one bottle, put it in there. One, it'll make your freezer more effective if you don't have a lot of empty space in it. The more empty space, the harder it is to keep everything cold. Frozen meat, believe it or not, helps keep the freezer cold. Right. So make sure that you are maximizing the space and filling it up. If there's any empty space couple frozen bottles of water in there. And if you do have a power failure loss, you're going to get longer duration keeping the internal portion of that freezer cold for you. Uh, again, great call, great suggestion. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Robert from Colorado. Just called and ask your opinion on uh, I've got an opportunity to take my money out of my 401K, actually just borrow the money from the 401K. And I was wondering if this would be a good time to do it with the market high assuming that the market's going to go back down low. Love your thoughts. Thanks for the show. Bye. Well, in most cases, I'm going to say absolutely, positively, in no way should you do that. Um, I mean, here's here's my, my questions to you. If you were on the line live with me, I would say, why are you borrowing it? What are you going to do with it? And given the short window of time you have to pay it back, how do you intend to pay it back? So let's say that... Um, Let's say this was going on. Let's say you had a settlement coming from a job or something. You had a big check on the way in uh, as part of a pension or something like that or uh, just anything. You were getting a, Let's say you're getting an early retirement. They're going to write you a check, and, and you had plans to use that money for something, and maybe you need a portion of it, and it's guaranteed you're going to get this money. It's just a time issue, and you need money for a short-term emergency. You have a medical bill that... Uh, they're going to take your house away, and but you know that the other money's coming. Then that about the only way that I would be okay with borrowing your own money out of your own 401k. Because you know that the ability to repay is coming, and you know the time it's coming, and, and it's still a little bit of a risk because you know about Murphy, and you invite him into your life, and next thing you know, he kicks you in the nuts. So unless it's that kind of scenario, I would really never uh, suggest that's exactly what you do. Most people, when they're going to borrow from a 401k, they're doing it at a time when they're in financial trouble. And they say, well, instead of liquidating and paying the penalty, I'll borrow from it. And when you know they're having that conversation with the financial liar, as I call him, uh, he says, you know, if you ever really need the money, you can borrow it. But he doesn't really explain, at, at, you know, what terms. And basically, you're borrowing your own money, you have to pay it back. And it's a very short window of time that you have to pay it back before it becomes a distribution and you have to pay a penalty on it. So the other thing you said was, well, you think the market's high and it might go down, and I can't disagree or agree with that. I don't really know where the market's going short term. I've always claimed to have some insight into where the market's going to be going long term, looking over a year, uh, but never over a month or two. But that said, why I can't completely object to that statement is we're going into an election cycle, and typically the market wanes during election cycles. 
If you want to play that trading game, you don't have to take your money out of your 401k to do that. All you have to do is inside your 401k, there's something like a money market or cash equivalent, a cash fund, something like that is very, very safe. It's a, a money fund. And all you do is you just take all the funds that you have and liquidate them into that money fund and wait if that's what you wanted. If you want to hold cash during a downturn, there's no need to go through all the crap, the paperwork and possible headaches, mix-ups, and hang-ups of borrowing your own money just to liquidate it and get it out of the stocks. All you have to do is move it to a safe place. That's what I've told everybody over and over and over again when I talk about getting out of stocks for certain things. Well, how do I get the money out? You don't get it out of the vehicle. Remember, a 401k, an IRA, anything like that is nothing but a vehicle. It's a holding place for various investments. It's also why I would say if you have a 401k from a previous job, get that sucker into an IRA as fast as possible. You have more options with what you can do in an IRA than a 401k. A 401k is going to have a list of maybe a dozen different options. An IRA is almost unlimited if you get the right one. So your financial advisor can probably help you with picking the right IRA, but be Uh, responsible for yourself and picking the investments. Don't just do whatever he says. And if your gut tells you to protect your money, whenever you feel your gut telling you, do it. Trust me, if the market goes up six points or something like that, six percentage points by the end of the year, and you don't make the six percent, you'll be able to live with it. If it goes down by 20% and you lose it and you didn't trust your gut, you're going to have a hard time living with that. Uh, that's the best I can do for you on that one without knowing why you're going to borrow. But again, the only way I would ever be okay with borrowing money for a 401k for a specific event with a known capability of repayment within the repayment window. It is not a way to protect your money during a market crash or a market slide. The way to do that is to go into cash inside the investment vehicle and avoid the distribution penalties. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Yeah, hi, Jack. Thanks for the show. Really enjoy it. Uh, my question goes back to last week. Uh, comment on disabled preppers. Uh, what about vision impaired? Uh, I heard you comment that your uncorrected vision is around 2070 or something. Where I walk around corrected, so gives you a baseline. Uh, more importantly, on shooting weapons choices, um, what weapons? Um, back up here. I'm left eye dominant by far, right hand dominant by far. So I'm going to have to choose a left handed weapon, uh, or at least shoot left handed. What weapons need to be specifically left-handed? Which ones can a left-handed shooter use correctly as a right-handed gun? So uh, questions for you on that. And any other comments or uh, things you can point out about a left-handed or a uh, vision-impaired prepper? Uh, sorry for stuttering. Thanks again for the show, Jack. First, just so you know that I understand and feel your pain, I'm not 2070 corrected. Uh, I'm, I'm about 2020 uh, uncorrected in my right eye, about like 20, 2025. It's barely barely any connection in my right eye. With, with, a gla with glasses on, my vision in my right eye is superb. Uh, it's, it, it's, I can read the very bottom of any eye chart they've ever put in front of me. Conversely, My left eye is 2070 corrected. So if I close my right eye, I see the world the way you do when I'm wearing glasses. My left eye is legally blind uh, without correction. Uh, we're talking 2200. Uh, that's you know off the charts in the other direction. So I have a, com a complete discrepancy between my eyes due to uh, a mild astigmatism that so confused my brain that it's an optical nerve thing. So... My big thing with that is protecting the hell out of my right eye. I don't go anywhere without glasses. I won't get contacts. I'll never do it. And people say, why? And I mean, here's why. Because glasses offer my right eye some protection, and if I have any damage to my right eye, then I have to rely on that left eye. So I am a, you know, religious about protection of my eye. Because uh, it's, it's the only, I don't have two like most people. I got one. Uh, or I'm going to be visually impaired highly myself. So I see the world a lot more one-dimensionally, believe it or not, than a lot of people do, because I don't have that, that bifocal world that, uh, that makes humans unique. So I have unique vision challenges myself. Um, on you know, pre prepping, I guess you everybody, you know, vision impaired can mean somebody like you at 2070 vision, and I'm closing my right eye right now, and I can adjust to this and I can get around. If I had two of them like that, 
it would probably be a lot easier than one of them like that. So it sucks, but you know it works and it's actually sufficient for driving. And, and when I look through my left eye only, it kind of scares me that they would let me drive that way. But the eye doctor told me they would. Um, so it could be like that, or it could be you would have vision corrected or uncorrectable 2200 vision in both eyes, where you know it's 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 barring on it is legal blindness, right? But it's barring on blindness. You know, you're using a stick to get around at that point. So anything in between is going to have its own level of challenges. So I think you have to adjust that to yourself. 2070, I think you pretty much do what everybody else does. Um, but you're always going to have a challenge with how accurate your shooting's going to be. You, I won't lie to you and say, you know, you're going to be on the Olympic air gun team and you can overcome that one. I, I don't think you can. Um, I, I don't think I could shoot very well with 2070 vision in my right eye. Uh, it would be difficult. As far as left eye dominance, uh, and having to shoot left handed, um, And what weapons, you know, require left hand and what don't. I can't go through a laundry list and start naming off models and makes and stuff, but the, here's the basic rules. If it's a handgun, it probably doesn't matter very much and you'll be able to sort it out. You want an ampidextrous safety. You want to learn the, uh, the, uh, the workings of that weapon well, just like anybody else would. And with the dexterity of the human hand and the human hand is a marvel, you're not going to have a problem. Revolver, same thing. So most of your handguns are going to be a non-issue, especially, uh, or expect, except for some maybe some specially purpose-made ones that are really not going to be that big of an issue. But like the XP100 Remington, obviously, you're going to have to reach across uh, to work the bolt, but it's not going to be an issue. When it comes to bolt-action rifles, it's not that big a deal, except you do have to reach across. So if you're going to be buying that, that rifle that you're going to carry for the rest of your life, that rifleman's rifle, you're probably better off buying a left-handed version of, uh, of a bolt action. But it's not going to be a huge hindrance to your shooting uh, to have to go cross-bolt with, with, uh, with that left hand. So it's okay. When you move into anything that ejects, anything that side ejects is probably going to be a problem. Many things that eject, there's a few weapons out there that eject overhead, straight up, and there's some that eject, eject straight down. They're probably going to be okay. Side eject weapons, whether they're pump or semi-auto, uh, long arms are always going to be an issue, and you want a left-handed version if you can get it. With ARs, when I was in the military, there was no such thing, in basic anyway, as a left-handed M16. And that throws brass out. So what did they do? They used something called a brass deflector, uh, which was just a little uh, nylon plastic piece that would snap into the handguard. And that meant that when that piece of brass came out, instead of coming kind of on that backward angle off uh, to to the right side, which would hit the left-handed shooter in the face or go down their, their shirt or cause them some level of discon, discomfort or, or, or injury, uh, it hit that deflector and kind of shot itself forward. And those worked pretty well. Uh, but I didn't like them because they were this additional component on the weapon uh, that really wasn't necessary. So there are some left-handed AR platforms. I would say that you're better off, if you can find it, buying a left-handed designed weapon whenever it's available. But your uh, your single shots, your bolt actions, and your handguns are pretty much not going to matter very much. Um, so those are your those are your ones that are going to work out for you. I think you're going to find anything that throws the uh, throws the cartridge out to the right hand side is going to be an annoyance or potential for injury. And if you're dealing with already impaired eyes, the last thing you want to do is increase your potential for injury. So there you go. Best I can do on that one. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, hey, Jack. I have a quick question. I live in an apartment, and all of my closets are now filled with uh, food and water. And I'm severely running out of room to keep my uh, preps. Any suggestions? Thank you. Again, this is one where the guy with the three-bedroom house with uh, the big two-car garage and the uh, large uh, storage facility out back and a second home to put overflow in and make as your primary bug-out location gets freaking spoiled and doesn't think about things like this once in a while. And I need to, so thank you for asking that question. Um, the first thing I would tell you, though, is storage is pretty cheap, and maybe you need to look at some of your maybe your more long-term stuff uh, that can handle the environmental issues of being in a storage facility. If you can find an affordable storage facility, specifically if there happens to be one that's even walking distance, maybe not walking distance uh, every day, but walking distance under a need um, from your apartment, you might want to consider going with that. If and You can always look at it this way. This is day-to-day -day life. 
right? And you say, well, if the shit hits the fan and I got to get to the storage facility, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be hard and maybe dangerous and maybe people will loot it when the when it's really bad. Well, generally speaking, that type of long term looting, pillaging, end of the world scenario, you're gonna have to get out of that apartment anyway. But even if it, something like that's coming, you're probably gonna have enough warning to go down there preemptively. And if you're stacking shit to the roof at that point and inside the apartment and leaving yourself a tunnel to get through to your bedroom, so be it. But you don't want to live that way day to day. So you might want to look at some uh, off-site storage to take some of the overflow. The other thing is, are you maximizing the space that you have efficiently? One of the things we've done, and it's been very effective for us, is the Tupperware, and I've used it. I've used these things uh To see one, you look at my video on my YouTube channel where I made a grow light system, that type of very low uh, to the ground Tupperware storage, and put a lot of the stuff in there, and that stuff slides underneath even the lowest bed. In fact, you can stack them too high under a lot of beds. So under the bed storage, are you maximizing that, I guess, is one thing to look at. Um, but those are going to be my two big ones. Now, the other thing is to look at your clutter. Um, and I'm terrible about it. I don't, I'm like, a, my grandfather was a junk man, my daddy's a junk man, and I'm a junk man. I don't throw anything away until my wife makes me. Uh, and sometimes I'll go in with a box and I'll throw two or three boxes and bags of stuff away uh, out of my office. And I look and I go, there's no, where the hell was this stuff? Uh, so I'm the last person to lecture anybody on clutter, but a lot of us have a lot of clutter in our lives, things that we're not going to use, getting rid of that stuff. The other thing is hyper-organization in tight spaces, everything labeled, everything in its place, and things like that. My next question is, how much do you have? Maybe it's time to level off on the material storage of, of things. Maybe it's time to start looking at saving some money. Maybe it's time to start looking at some tools. Maybe it's time to start looking at uh, just stockpiling cash so that... When this second crash comes, and it will, whether I'm right about the false recovery or not, we're in for a world of freaking hurt somewhere in the next five years. And if you're sitting on a mountain of cash and somewhere in the next five years, you're going to have one of the most unbelievable opportunities to buy property ever. And maybe you need to start putting aside any surplus in the form of cash, which takes up very little space, so that you're prepared for that day if that's something you eventually want. Best I can do, man. I mean, I haven't lived in an apartment for 12 years. You know, the closest I've come to living in an apartment in 12 years is is owning an RV and staying in there while we're taking a trip. And uh, it's it's taught me about how how necessary it is to be efficient with storage and space and things like that. And thank God for my wife, folks, because I'd just have crap stacked all over this house if it wasn't for her. Between her taking care of some of it, setting up systems for some of it, and riding my ass when I need it to put something away, um, she's a blessing to, to somebody with ADD and, and a disorganized, eccentric personality. So uh, you can learn something from people like her that are more organized than me. And that's the best I can do with the apartment. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. This has been another episode of the Survival Podcast, and I want to leave you with a few thoughts today as you go into the weekend. Um, it's the middle of summer. It's hot. Kids are out of school. Uh, fall and winter seems miles and miles away right now. It will be here before you know it. And that metaphor in life is a metaphor for all things in life. It is sunny right now. The economy is not as bad as the news and the, the TV and the Internet tells you it is. There is work. Some of it sucks, but you can find a job if you really want one. Uh, most cities, at least, you can get a job delivering pizzas if you have to. Uh, you can get a job cutting grass. There's still people employed that don't want to cut their own dadgone grass. And I mean, there's ways to make some money. You can put together a website. There's a lot of ways to make some money and get by right now. There's a lot of handouts still coming from the government. And if you're down and out and you need unemployment, I don't have a problem with unemployment because before you get unemployment, you have to have a freaking job and work long enough. And uh, But that's good. that gravy's going to run out too. This is the good times. I know it's hard to believe that. This is summer in life right freaking now. This isn't as good as it gets. This is that summer that's kind of rainy and dreary, but it was still summer. This isn't the summer where it snows in July in the south. This isn't the year without a summer that we had when a couple of volcanoes blew up a few hundred years ago. This isn't the summer of the Little Ice Age. This is a pretty dadgone good summer right now. This is not the Great Depression. The electrical grid still works. Look at the, the shopping malls and the parking lots. There is still construction. This is good 
times. I know some of you don't believe that because you're having it tough right now. Even for you, it's good. If you're listening to this on a, a computer, you got to think about the fact that you have access to a computer. That says something about how stable society is right now. Why am I pounding about how good it is? Because it could get real bad real fast. Real fast. Winter comes like a thief in the night. And it gets cold and it gets miserable. Don't think it's time to lay back on your preps. Keep prepping. Keep being ready. But, but above all, have that vision for where you, li- you want your life in 10 years. If you do not have a place you want to be in 10 years, you will probably be in the same place you are now in 10 years. That's reality. The only way you get somewhere is to have a map for your life. Please build that map for your life. Please keep preparing for the troubled times. And please keep building everything so even if they don't come, even if I'm wrong about that, you have a better life tomorrow and you certainly have a better life 10 years from now. Life is too short to spend your life working until you're 75 years old and live what are supposed to be your golden years when your best years are behind you. Live for today and plan for tomorrow. It is possible. That's part of modern survival thinking. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.